0: Coming to you live from an alternate reality version of Gotham City, it's the Dociverse Podcast, episode 105 Robotic Emus from Mars. In this episode, we've got another horror movie review and the GM's Toolkit. And now, let's start the show. Hello there, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Doc Cross, and I'm hoping you all had a good week. I had a pretty good one. So I did some gardening, I did some yard work, I ran some errands, took the dogs to the dog park multiple times. It was pretty warm this weekend. Uh, We're talking about uh, Saturday the 24th and Sunday the 25th of September, because I do record these things in advance, and uh, otherwise it was a pretty good week, we're coming up close to October and we'll see how the weather changes then, it's supposed to cool down the rest of this coming week, we'll see how that works out. One thing that I know works out is my patrons over on Patreon, my beloved patrons, who send me money every month so I can do this podcast and other things, and sometime in the next couple months, I'll be talking about one of those other things. Anyway, I would like to thank them, as I always do, right at the beginning of the program. So, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, David. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Avis. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, James. Thank you, Marion. And thank you, Mark. You guys are great, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. And now we move on to a horror movie review As we have the past two weeks Where we look at the seminal horror movies Mostly of the 1930s That sort of set the stage For all the various horror movies to come afterwards And this time we're looking at The Mummy Now The Mummy is a 1932 American Pre-code supernatural horror film Directed by Carl Freund The screenplay by John L. Balderston was adapted from a treatise written by Nina Wilcox Putnam and Richard Scheer. It was released by Universal Studios as part of the Universal Classic Monsters franchise, which they probably weren't calling it that back then in the 30s, but that's what it's called now. And the film stars Boris Karloff, Zita Johan, David Manners, Edward Van Sloan, and Arthur Byron. Now, this horror movie is not exactly like the others. Um, You don't have a rampaging Frankenstein-like monster walking around, and you don't really have a definite vampire who always keeps popping up. you got a little bit different thing going on. In the film, Karloff stars as Imhotep, an ancient Egyptian mummy who was killed for attempting to resurrect his dead lover, Ankh-Esunamun. After being discovered and accidentally brought to life by a team of archaeologists, he disguises himself as a modern Egyptian named Ardeth Bey, and he searches for Ankh-Esunamun. I may pronounce that differently each time I say it because I'm not really sure, but... And he believes she has been reincarnated in the modern world. While being less culturally impactful than its predecessors, Dracula and Frankenstein, The Mummy was still a moderate success, spawning several sequels, spin offs, remakes, and reimaginings, some of which sucked. However, later interpretations have criticized the film for its Orientalist portrayal of Egyptian culture. And let's face it, folks, it was the 1930s. Yeah, being uh, aware of other cultures wasn't something that was happening in American films or British films or a lot of other films. So the plot, which you probably know, but I'll remind you about, starts out in 1921 when an archaeological expedition led by Sir Joseph Wemble, played by Arthur Byron, finds the mummy of an ancient Egyptian high priest named Imhotep, played by Boris Karloff. An inspection of the mummy by Wimple's friend Dr. Mueller, played by Edward Van Sloan, reveals that the mummy's viscera were not removed. And when you're making mummies in ancient Egypt, that's a big sign that something's wrong. And from the signs of struggling, Mueller deduces that although Imhotep has been wrapped up like a traditional mummy, he had been buried alive. Also buried with Imhotep in the casket is a scroll with a curse on it. So, things get weird right there. And despite Muller's warnings, Sir Joseph's assistant, Ralph Norton, played by Bramwell Fletcher, opens it and he finds the... Scroll is life-giving scroll, the Scroll of Thoth. He translates the symbols and then reads the words aloud, causing Imhotep to rise from the dead. This snaps Norton's mind, and he laughs hysterically as Imhotep shuffles off with the scroll. Norton later dies, still laughing, in a straitjacket. This is one of the creepiest things in this movie, and in fact, Of the three movies I'm talking about here, Dracula Frankenstein, both had creepy moments, both had scary moments. This one creeped me the fuck out the first time I saw it, and I saw this movie about oh eight or nine months ago, and it still creeped me out. It's just really weird. It's also the only time in the movie that Karloff appears as the mummy. We'll talk about that later. Anyway, we move ahead 10 years, it's 1931, and Imhotep has assimilated into modern society, taking the identity of an eccentric Egyptian historian named Ardeth Bey. He calls upon Sir Joseph's son Frank, played by David Manners, and Professor Pearson, played by Leonard Moody, and shows them where to dig to find the tomb of the princess Anka Once again, not sure how I pronounce that. After locating the tomb, the archaeologists present its treasures to the Cairo Museum, after which Imhotep disappears. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, that Imhotep, he's up to something. Imhotep soon encounters Helen Grosvenor, a half-Egyptian woman who stays with Muller, and she bears a striking resemblance to the princess that he left so long ago. So Imhotep falls in love with her, but so does Frank. But then, after revealing he is the mummy, Muller urges Joseph to burn the scroll of Thoth, and when Joseph tries to do so, Imhotep uses his magical powers to kill him, and then hypnotizes a Nubian to be his slave and bring the scroll to him. So, there's some weird shit going on that you don't see in too many other mummy movies. After the servant does so, Imhotep hypnotizes Helen to come to his place and there reveals to her that his horrific death was punishment for sacrilege as he attempted to resurrect his forbidden lover, Princess Ankh-Esunimun. Believing her to be the princess's reincarnation, he attempts to make her his immortal bride by killing, mummifying, and resurrecting her. Frank and Muller come to rescue her, but they're knocked out. However, Helen is saved when she remembers her ancestral past life and prays to the goddess Isis to come to her aid. The statue of Isis raises its arms, emits a flash that sets the scroll of Thoth on fire. That breaks Imhotep's immortality spell, and next thing you know, he's a pile of dust. And at the urging of Dr. Muller, Frank calls Helen back to the world of living While a scroll of Thoth continues to burn. The end. Like I said. This movie is not like later mummy movies. Where the mummy just is a monster that walks around. It's got one arm stuck to it. and It's got the other arm out or whatever. Uh, It's not a mindless servant of somebody reading from a scroll. This mummy knows what he's doing. And in fact... Until the version with Brendan Fraser came out, that was how all the mummies acted was blind, you know, killing machines. That somebody else was usually controlling. So we move on now to the cast, as I read before um, Boris Karloff as Imhotep, Ardeth Bey, uh, Zita Johan as Helen Grosvenor, and Princess Ankh Esunamun. David Manners as Frank Wemple, Arthur Byerner so Joseph Wemple, Edward Van Sloan as Dr. Muller, Bromwell Fletcher as Ralph Norton, Noble Johnson, a really fine African-American actor who was in a lot of movies, as the Nubian, and Leonard Moody as Professor Pearson. Now, the production of the movie was inspired by the opening of Tutankhamen's tomb in 1922 and the curse of the pharaohs, that was part of all that. So, producer Carl Lammel Jr. commissioned story editor Richard Shear to find a novel to form a basis for an Egyptian-themed horror film, just as the novels Dracula and Frankenstein had inspired their 1931 films. Shear found none, because there weren't any stories like that. Although, the plot bears a strong resemblance to a short story by Arthur Conan Doyle entitled... The Ring of Thoth. Schayer and writer Nina Wilcox Putnam learned about Alessandro Cagliostro and wrote a nine-page treatment entitled Cagliostro. The story was set in San Francisco. is about a 3,000-year-old magician who survives by injecting nitrates, uh, because, you know, why wouldn't you? And Lemel was pleased with Cagliostro's concept and then he hired John L. Balderston to write a script. Now, Balderston had contributed to Dracula and Frankenstein, and he had covered the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb for the New York World when he had been a journalist, so he was pretty familiar with all this stuff. So Balderston moved the story to Egypt and renamed the film and its title character Imhotep after the historical architect. There really was an Imhotep. He also changed the story from one of revenge upon all women who resemble the main character's ex-lover to one where the main character is determined to revive his old love by killing and mummifying her and doing all the stuff we talked about earlier. Now, Balderston invented the Scroll of Thoth, which is not a real thing, which gave an aura of authenticity to the story. And that's because Thoth was the wisest of the Egyptian gods who, when Osiris died, helped Isis bring her lover back from the dead. So Thoth is believed to have authored the Book of the Dead, which may have been the inspiration for Baldur's Scroll of Thoth. Another likely source of inspiration is the fictional Book of the Dead, which appears in several ancient Egyptian stories. Now, Carl Freund, the cinematographer on Dracula, was hired to direct this movie, and it was his first movie as a United States director. He had also been cinematographer on Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which we will talk about someday, probably when we get to the science fiction films. But, uh, yeah, Metropolis is a great movie, and wonderful cinematography in that. The film was retitled The Mummy, and Freund cast Zita Johann who believed in reincarnation and who named her character ankh Isunamun after the only wife of Pharaoh Tutankhamun, And the real ankh Isunamun body had not been discovered in the tomb of King Tut and her resting place was unknown. Her name, however, would not have been unknown to the general public. Filming began in September 1932 and was scheduled for three weeks. Carlos' first day was spent shooting the mummy's awakening from the sarcophagus, and makeup artist Jack Pierce had studied photos of Seti, the first mummy, to decide, you know, how to do Imhotep, and Karloff looked nothing like the mummy of Seti I in the films. Instead, he bore a resemblance to the mummy of Ramses the Third. And Pierce began transforming Karloff at 11 a.m., applying cotton, collodion, and spirit gum to his face, clay to his hair, and wrapped him in linen bandages that had been treated with acid and burnt in an oven to get that ancient bandaged look. And I figure when they finished putting all the stuff on him at 7 o'clock at night, so he was there for like 8 hours getting all this on, I figure old Boris must have been thinking, these motherfuckers ain't paying me enough. Karloff finished his scene at 2 a.m. and another two hours were spent removing the makeup. Karloff found the removal of gum from his face painful and overall found the day to be, and we quote, the most trying ordeal I had ever endured. And this is a guy who had a lot of makeup put on his face over the years. And although the images of Karloff wrapped in bandages are the most iconic taken from the film, Karloff appeared on screen in this makeup for only the opening vignette. The rest of the film sees him wearing a lot less elaborate makeup. A lengthy and detailed flashback sequence was longer than it now exists. This sequence showed the various forms of Aung Sunamun as she was reincarnated over the centuries. They showed her, you know, the different points throughout history, including a scene with the Saxons and a List Henry Victor. He's credited in film as a Saxon warrior, but his performance was deleted. Now, there are still, still photographs of these sequences, but the footage, except for the part about Karloff, first making his appearance and uh, the sacrilegious events leading up to his mummification in ancient Egypt, uh, those, of course, were in the movie. Everything else was lost. The pieces of classical music heard during the opening credits are taken from Tchaikovsky's ballet, Swan Lake, and they were used in Dracula and Murder in the Rue Morgue. So, yeah, Tchaikovsky got a workout from Universal and they would be reused later as title music for the same studio's Secret of the Blue Room. Now, as for reception, the Los Angeles Times was very positive about it, although the film otherwise gained mixed reviews and was still a box office success, but it wasn't anything on the level of Frankenstein or Dracula. When the film opened at New York's RKO Mayfair Theater, A reviewer for the New York Times was ultimately unimpressed. Again, we quote from the review. For purposes of terror, there are two scenes in The Mummy that are weird enough in all conscious. In the first, The Mummy comes alive and a young archaeologist, going quite mad, laughs in a way that raises the hair on the scalp. In the second, Imhotep is embalmed alive, and at that moment when the tape is drawn across the man's mouth and nose leaving only his wild eyes staring out of the coffin, is one of decided horror. But most of The Mummy is costume melodrama for the children. Like I said, the film was a success at the box office in the United Kingdom and in the United States, so I don't guess Universal gave much of a rat's ass about that guy's review. Now, Rotten Tomatoes, who is a big review aggregator, reports an 88% score. Based on 42 reviews. So it looks pretty good even nowadays. If you you know, want to see the movie it's got a good reviews. It's not, uh, not one of those ones that's wasted away over the years. Because it just didn't hold up. Now we come to the legacy of The Mummy. And we start off with the sequels. Now unlike other Universal Monster films. The Mummy had no official sequels. But rather was reimagined in The Mummy's Hand, The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Ghost, The Mummy's Curse, and the horror comedy Abbott Costello Meet the Mummy. Now, these films focused on the titular character named Charis. And Charis was a mummy that was brought to life, I believe, Tannis Leaves. figured into that Um, The Mummy's Hand recycled footage from the original film for use in telling of his origins and you clearly see Boris Karloff in several of these recycled scenes but he's not credited Lon Chaney Jr. actually played the mummy in The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Ghost and The Mummy's Curse Uh, all of these movies are of lesser quality than the original And really, you start with a mummy's hand and you go through them, they get less and less great as time goes by. But they were popular, and they made money, and they're still around. Uh, I think Turner Classic Movies has shown at least two or three of them in a row one night. That was several years ago. After those movies, especially after the last one, Abbott and Costello, Meet the Mummy, which is pretty bad, I think... It's also the last Abbott and Costello movie that they made together. They went their separate ways after that. And in fact, uh, I believe Lou Costello died not long after they separated. He made one or two movies and that was it. Anyway, after those movies, then we come to the Hammer productions. And the Hammer Mummy movies are, well, they vary widely in how good they are. They begin with the 1959 version of The Mummy. And it was not a remake of the 32 film, but it was based on Universal's The Mummy's Hand and The Mummy's Tomb, which was 1940 1942 for those. Uh, Hammer's follow-ups, The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Shroud, and Blood from the Mummy's Tomb are all unrelated to the first film or even each other. They are only related by the fact that they have the Scroll of Life and it's in two of the films, Curse of the Mummy's Tomb and Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. And other than that, they bear no relation to each other. And, yeah, they're not that great. I will say, that though, in the 1959 movie, The Mummy is played by Christopher Lee. I can't remember if he plays the mummy in any of the others, but he did in the 1959 version, which is not bad. Now we come to remakes, and the big remake is the 1999 movie The Mummy, which came from Universal Studios. And it suggests that it's a remake of the 1932 film, but it has a different storyline, and it's quite a bit different. Good movie, very good movie, but way different. I mean, it's more like an Indiana Jones movie almost. However, in the context of most postmodern remakes of classic horror movies and science fiction films, it may be considered a sequel by the fact that it was produced and distributed by the same studio. Its titular character is again named Imhotep, and resurrected by the Book of the Dead. And he's out to find the present-day embodiment of the soul of his beloved Anuk Sunamun. And it features an Egyptian named Ardeth Bey, who, in his case, he's a guard of the city and of Imhotep's tomb. The film spawned two sequels, with The Mummy Returns, which was not as good as the first one, but still a pretty good movie, and Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, which is the weakest of the three, but it's still okay. The Mummy Returns also spawned a prequel spin-off of that sequel called The Scorpion King, which in turn spawned a prequel called Scorpion King 2, Rise of a Warrior, and three sequels, Scorpion King 3, Battle for Redemption, Scorpion King 4, Quest for Power, and Scorpion King, Book of Souls. As you might imagine, each following one from the original one sucked a little more. They're, they're not very good at all. It also spun off a short-lived animated series simply titled The Mummy, which ran from 2001 to 2003, and I know nothing about it, because I never saw it. But I kind of like to get a look at it. Then we come to the 2012 reboot of The Mummy. Now, See, what Universal wanted to do was do its own cinematic universe because, hey, Marvel was doing it and making a lot of money. And since Universal owned all these monsters, the idea was to do a dark universe. You know, that was going to be their cinematic deal. So they made two movies for this dark universe. One was The Wolfman, which we will talk about next week when we talk about the original Wolfman. And then there was The Mummy. And it was planned as a first film in a series of interconnected monster films. And that was what they were going to build their shared universe on. Except, A, the movie turned out to be a box office tragedy. It sucked. And two, they hired Tom Cruise to star in a film... And he just started flexing his muscles and demanding things be done and rewriting things and blah, 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 blah. And turned the movie into a piece of shit. Sofia Botella portrays Princess Amonet, the mummy, so they swapped sexes. Totally fine, but, you know, probably pissed off some grognards and idiots out there. Although, she was a damn powerful and scary as hell monster. I mean, she was really scary. She was the best part of the whole movie. And they also had Russell Crowe appearing as Dr. Henry Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, which, you know, I mean, that was supposed to tie into a Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde movie. And then they were going to tie it into Wolfman and Creature of a Black Lagoon and Frankenstein and who knows what. However... The movie received terrible, terrible negative reviews because it sucked. And it's considered a box office bomb. And it caused them to scrap the plans for the entire group of upcoming movies and the Dark Universe itself. However, if you do see The Mummy, and it shows on TV fairly frequently, you'll notice that they start with a Dark Universe thing. You know, the Universal thing transforms into... Dark Universe. And that's the only time you're going to see that unless they figure out a way to bring it back years from now when everybody has gotten the bad taste of the mummy out of their mouth. Um, The mummy has been honored many times. Uh, It was nominated for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills. It was in AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains. And that was Imhotep. It's actually only nominated. It didn't get put in there. And the movie has, like Dracula and Frankenstein, it has had an effect on all the Mummy movies afterwards. They all follow the same basic uh, plot, same basic ideas, you know, the scroll of life, blah, 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 all that stuff. The Mummy is, of the three movies I've so far reviewed, it's the most different. It's the least different. Monster of the Monster movies, and it's actually in a lot of ways better to watch than Dracula because it's a better story. It's made for the sound movies. It's it's got better acting in a lot of ways. I think Karloff's uh, Imhotep slash Arth Bay is better acted than the Lugosi's Dracula. So, if you get a chance to see the classic Mummy, go ahead and do it. And it's a movie that's, like I say, it's become iconic. It's part of the Universal Monsters, and it is well worth seeing. And next week, we go to the Wolfman, and we'll talk about that. Alrighty, gentle listeners, we are about to open up the GM's toolkit, and this time our topic is tag team GMing. Now, this has actually been around for a long time, where two or more people in a group will switch off GMing, and generally that's done where one person gets tired of running, I don't know D&D for a while, and the other person says, "Okay, I'll run." an outer space game or i'll run you know a modern game or whatever or he could be running a different sort of DD game so i'm not talking about that i'm talking about two or more people in a group running the same game but when one person gets tired of GMing, they say okay sally joe whoever your turn next week you run the game So at that point, you could say, okay, they're going to share the overall plot of the game. And that's okay, as long as the person who is going from GMing to playing doesn't abuse the knowledge they have. I personally would not do that. Uh, I love people. I know people will do their best to play the game and do the best to do right by the GMing and the playing, but it's still going to leak in. You're still going to say, yeah, I know there's a troll in that room, so I'm going to have my sword out and poisoned before I go into the room. But nobody else knows that. So, yeah, it's human nature to want to take advantage of, you know, a situation when you have advantage. So what I would do would be to have each GM run a segment of the game and know when they're going to stop. So Bob says, okay, I'm going to run the first five segments over the first five weeks, and that will get us from the tavern where we meet the inevitable little old guy that gives us this assignment. And it'll get us from there all the way to the deep, dark woods. And as we enter the deep, dark woods, I'll tag out and then... Mary can go ahead and run the game for five or six sessions. And Mary says, yeah, okay, I will run it from the deep, dark woods until we get to the far eastern city of Shadazar. And then I'll tag out and Bob can come back. Or I'll tag out and somebody else can do it. This is sort of like what I'm going to talk about next time, which is the serial approach to running a game, but not exactly the same. Tag team GMing will have a lot of advantages for people that want to do it. Right off the bat, it eliminates GM burnout. It eliminates the poor GM, and we are all who GM poor bastards because we get stuck GMing all the time. I mean, I was commiserating with a friend of mine not long ago. She has been running a game for 22 years with very few breaks i have taken self-imposed breaks where i didn't gm for a year year and a half and i did very little playing at that point but generally speaking when a group gets together and they say who's going to gm everybody looks at me and that's the same thing with her she's been running basically dnd for like you know all those years decades so the tag team approach eliminates gm burnout You don't have enough time to get to the point where you either want to just quit because you're tired of jamming or you want to strangle your players because they're doing stupid shit. Uh, Somebody else takes over and they can strangle the players or they can, you know, take up the slack or they can add something new to the game. That's the other thing that tag team jamming will do. You make an agreement up front that you're not going to negate what somebody else does, what they throw into the game. You may ignore it. You may play around it. You may expand on it. You may alter it a little, but you can't just, you know, write it off. You can't say, oh, well, that trip you made up to the volcano, it never really happened. No, no, that happened. You have to deal with that. You can sort of brush it off. You can never mention it again, something like that. But that's the big thing about tag team jamming which is a lot like improv you can't negate you have to build upon or you can ignore now another advantage of tag team jamming is that you can move your game from place to place if you want to if that's a thing you can do so while bob's running well everybody plays at bob's house and when it's mary's turn you can't play at mary's house because she lives in a tiny little apartment but you can all play at the pizza place down the street and if it goes over to Ian's house or Sally's house or somebody else's house or backyard or nearby business or gaming saloon or gaming uh, store or whatever you can do that so you can move around and you, you know have things a little bit differently and you don't have everybody at somebody's house every week for 10 years which is you know a nice as far as friendships and predictability and getting comfortable but it can have a kind of an effect on your home life especially if your spouse is not a gamer so this whole tag team gaming thing i think would work very well with a agreed upon world so you agree upon your world, either you make a big map on your own, or you get a map off uh, some place online, you use a map from some published scenario, or a world box set, uh, Forgotten Realms, something like that, and you say, okay, here's our map, this is where we're going to play, this is what we're going to do, this is here, that's there, and then you all agree on it, and then you Sit down and you figure out an overarching adventure or a theme for the campaign. So you can say, well, this theme of this campaign is basically just them getting from first level up to tenth level, where they're going to, you know, buy a castle and become landlords and stop being adventurers, which is what the thrust was in original D&D you were going to end up that way they had rules for it they had tables for it they had all this stuff it was assumed that when you got to a certain level you would stop adventuring and you would become a lord or a baron or a count or whatever and just you know run your holding so you could have it be that be your theme or you could say Nah, the theme is that they're just going out and they want to kill monsters because monsters are trying to take over the world. Or in a modern setting, it could be you're a group of spies and Bob's going to run the first four or five adventures and then Mary can run the next four or five and each adventure is taking them to some exotic place or against some recurring villain or some other intelligence organization. So whatever. You've got a lot of possibilities with tag team GMing. You have as many possibilities with tag team GMing as you have with individual GMing, maybe more. So this is something to think about, especially you poor damn GMs like me who really would like someone to take over once in a while so you can play. And this uh, solves a lot of problems. So give Tag Team GMing a thought. Possibly give it a try. And we will be back in a few weeks with more from the GM's Toolkit. All right, folks. We have reached the portion of the program where I thank you for listening. And I do thank you all for listening. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook where I'm Doc Cross on WordPress at the dockerverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com. If you are listening via Anchor, you can leave a voicemail, and you patrons can leave a message on my Patreon page, and I will get a text about it pretty quickly. If you'd like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts two months or more before they go up on Anchor, and I will be discussing Anchor in the next couple of months, go to www.patreon.com forward slash doc and sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Now, if you only want to do a one time donation or occasionally donate whenever you feel like it, then you go to my go to my coffee or Ko-Fi page, depending on how you pronounce it, and look for doc four five nine one, and then you can contribute as little or as much as you like. Once, twice, however often. If you would like to sponsor this podcast or advertise on it, get in touch with me by any of the methods I mentioned earlier. Our music was Joker's Lair by Coyote Hearing, and it came off of the Free Music Archives. This podcast and everything on it, except the music, is copyright 2022 by Doc Cross, and I will see you all next week. Until then...